0: Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Luke chapter 1. (coughs) Luke chapter 1 this morning (coughs) and we'll just read verse 5 and 6 before we open in prayer. Luke chapter 1 verse 5, it says, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, A certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abia, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. And let's open in a word of prayer. Lord and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this wonderful day. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to be here once again. Uh, to gather around your word, Uh, Lord, even in this format. Lord, I pray this morning that you'd speak to our hearts through your word, you would teach us, you would instruct us. Uh, Lord, particularly, Lord, being uh, Mother's Day, uh, Lord, as we we focus on the parents today, that you would just uh, teach us through your word. Uh, Lord, empower me now through the Spirit, uh, calm my nerves and give me wisdom and guidance as I speak. I pray that it would be your words and your thoughts we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Excuse me. Now, of course, being Mother's Day today, (coughs) I thought we'd um, take a look at some godly parents in the Word of God and look at their example uh, this morning. So, we wanted to look this morning at the parents of John the Baptist. And, of course, that's how Luke begins his Gospel. He begins by recording for us the arrival of John the Baptist onto the scene. And before anything else, he begins by uh, telling us of the political condition or the political situation, if you like, in the nation of Israel at the time. You see, this was a time of spiritual darkness. It was, it was not a, a good time, if you like, spiritually for the nation. Uh, the righteous were few and, and far, far between. The wicked were in power. They were in the, the seats of power there in Israel, and wickedness... Uh, dominated the deeds of men there in the nation of Israel and in verse 5 Luke begins there he says there was in the days of Herod the king of Judea and so he pinpoints for us the time frame here it's in the days of Herod the king and of course there's multiple Herods uh, recorded for us in the New Testament and the Herod that we're talking about here is Herod the Great and I'm sure we've heard that name before and his rule was a dark time in the history of Israel. Now, Herod was not a, a true king of Israel. He was not of the line of David. He was a, a puppet king who was, being, who was set up by the Romans. And so he was just put in place by them, given power by the Romans. He wasn't even a Jew. He was an Edomite. And that means he's a descendant of Esau, okay? the, the, the brother of Jacob. Okay? Of course, the Israelites come from Jacob and the Edomites therefore come from Esau. And so there's a lot of bad blood between the two uh, nations, between the two descendants. A lot of bad blood between the Jews and the Edomites. And so for an Edomite to be now sitting upon the throne of Israel was considered a disgrace. The Jews are not happy about this situation. It's, it's really a complete reversal of what God's plan had been for uh, both brothers and their descendants. You know, God had said that Jacob would rule, uh, not Esau. But because of Israel's sin, because of their their wickedness and the fact that they'd forsaken the Lord, God had allowed this trial to come. God had allowed this to happen as judgment for their sin. You know, not only was Herod an Edomite, but he was also a morally uh, corrupt or morally bankrupt uh, leader. Uh, Butler writes this, he says, that Herod did not hesitate to kill whenever it served his purpose. He killed his competitors, he killed his enemies, he killed a number of wealthy Jews and confiscated their wealth for his own coffers. He even executed a number of the members of his own family. One of his wives, some sons, and other relatives were executed when he felt they were in the way and threatened his rule. He was a brutal ruler. He was... There's no godliness in this man at all. Okay, He's not a godly man. He's a brutal, morally corrupt leader. Now, The most famous of his brutal acts is recorded for us in the Word of God. In Matthew chapter 2, of course, we have the, the birth of Christ there in Bethlehem. And Herod is the one who orders for all the children under the age of two to be executed there in Bethlehem. Because he's trying to, to kill Christ, he doesn't want to give up his hold on power, and so he's not going to let someone who is claiming to be king of the Jews to remain alive, and so he seeks to kill Christ at his birth. And so truly, these are dark times for the nation of Israel. You know, the ruler on their throne is really indicative of the state of the nation. You know, there's a reason why they've got such a terrible ruler, it's because of their sin, because of where they're at. You see, like Herod, the nation is morally corrupt. They've forsaken the Lord. And as I said, that's the whole reason God's allowing them at this time to be oppressed by the Romans and indeed oppressed by Herod as their king. And in the midst of these dark times, we're introduced now to this wonderful, godly couple, the parents of John the Baptist. We read on in verse 5, it says, uh, There was in the days of Herod the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abia, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So we're told about these terrible times, Herod's the king, and then straight after that we're introduced to these wonderful people, Zacharias and Elizabeth. Zacharias's name means Jehovah has remembered. Elizabeth birth her name means God is an oath, or that he is the absolutely reliable one. And they're fitting names, aren't they? They're fitting names when you consider, as we we will this morning, what takes place in their lives. They're fitting names for a a married couple here who exhibit much faith in the faithfulness of their God. They exhibit much faith in, in the fact that their God will keep his word, that God is faithful, that God is the reliable one. And so it's this couple, this married couple here this morning, that I want us to, to focus our attention on. These two godly parents in the midst of a sinful, wicked nation. And so first of all, here this morning, we see their righteousness. You see their righteousness. Look at me there in verse 6. It says, And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless <clears throat> a wonderful declaration to have recorded about you in the word of god you know god's word says here of this married couple he says they were both righteous before god walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the lord blameless that's a wonderful declaration you see what we have here is this this godly husband and wife who together are serving the lord and there's wonderful unity here in this home. It says that they were both righteous. There's unity here in this home, isn't there? They're not unequally yoked, they're, they're equally yoked. They're equally yoked and they're, they're laboring together for the Lord. This is truly a wonderful statement, and it's made even more remarkable when you consider the times in which they lived, as we just talked about in the introduction. You know, one commentator summed it up well. <clears throat> Excuse me, he said, In godly days it is not remarkable that one should live righteously. But when the prevailing spirit is unrighteous, the life that is holy and devout shines with rare splendor, like a lamp in the darkness. Such were the times and the spirits of the days of Herod, and such were the lives of the blameless old pair mentioned here. Amid almost universal corruption, they lived in piety and godly simplicity. And truly it does. It makes their, their light shine even brighter when you consider the, the times in which they lived. That God would make this wonderful statement about them. And so let's consider exactly what God records concerning this uh, married couple here. First of all, they're said here to be righteous before God. Okay? It says, and they were both righteous You know, it's one thing to be considered righteous before men. But it's quite another thing, completely different thing, to be considered righteous before God. You see, for someone to be declared righteous by God, there's more at play here than just being a morally good person. It's speaking out much more than that. Because righteousness before God is not something that we can earn, it's not something that's earned. Righteousness is something that's imputed to us by faith. For us to be declared righteous before God, it's put to our account, it's, it's counted to be true because of our faith, not because of something we've done. It's so really this statement here where it says, and they were both righteous before God, this is a statement really that speaks to us about their saving faith. It speaks to us about their saving faith in God. These are Old Testament saints. Old Testament saints who were saved by faith, looking forward to the Lord Jesus Christ and what he would do. And you know, they're in good company here, aren't they? You, know, you look through the Old Testament, there's numerous passages which record similar statements about other men and women uh, in, in other times. And God makes similar statements that they were righteous. Let's just look at a couple of them. Uh, Noah was declared to be righteous before God. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 6. <clears throat> In Genesis 6, of course, we all know the, the days in which Noah lived, you know, the wicked, simple times. So God sent the, ho- the flood across the whole world. And in the midst of that, in Genesis chapter 6, God records this about him. Uh, Genesis 6 and verse uh, 8, it says, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. And then in chapter 7, verse 1, it says, And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, for, I, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. So God declared Noah to be righteous before him. And again, that, that righteousness that was declared about Noah is not because of his good works, it's because of his faith in God. His faith in God demonstrated by his walk with the Lord. In Genesis 15, verse 6, we have that wonderful verse where it says that Abraham was declared righteous because of his faith. Let's turn there. Uh, Genesis 15, and verse 6. It says, and he believed, talking about Abraham, and he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Abraham believed God, and God counted it to him. God put it to his account that he was righteous. God declared him righteous because of his faith. You know, we can keep going through the Word of God. These are Old Testament saints, saved by faith, declared righteous before God. And that's what we have here in Luke chapter 1. We have these two, Elizabeth and Zacharias, declared to be righteous before God. And it's a statement of their faith. It's a statement of their saving faith. You know, really, there's no better foundation for a home, is there? No better foundation for a home to be built upon than to have both Parents saved. Both parents standing righteous before God. That's the perfect foundation for a home before anything else. That both are saved. Yeah, but then Luke adds a second part. He goes on. In verse 6 in that passage there it says, And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. In this we see a declaration That not only were they they saved, declared righteous before God, but we see now a declaration that their walk reflected their faith. Their daily walk demonstrated their faith in God. They walked in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. They let their light shine brightly in a wicked, sinful age. They didn't hide it under a bushel. We know the song. They didn't take their light and hide it. No, they let it shine bright. They, they made it clear that they were living for God. Everyone looked at them and saw the difference in their lives. It was clear. And that's what he says here. Walking in the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. Or blameless in the eyes of men. You know, this is the principle that James talks about in James chapter 2, isn't it? Let's just turn over there, James 2. James chapter 2, and let's read from verse 14. And I know we know these verses, but... Let's go and remind ourselves of them. James chapter two this morning and verse fourteen. It says What doth it profit, my brethren? Though a man say he hath faith and hath not works, can faith save him? For brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled. Notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. You know, James talks about this idea, doesn't he? About the fact that our faith must be demonstrated by our works. Our faith needs to be backed up by our walk. That our lives demonstrate the, you know, what we say, is actually true. And that definitely was the case here with Zacharias and Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, they're, they're saved, but then they walked in obedience to the Lord. They walked a life that was blameless, it says, blameless in the eyes of men. You know, blameless there doesn't mean that they were sinless. No man is sinless. They sinned, just like we all do. But rather it means that they lived a holy life. They lived a life that reflected their faith And there was nothing that man could hold on to and accuse them of. They dealt with sin. They lived righteous. They lived blameless. You know, we have, as I said, the perfect foundation for a godly home, don't we? You've got these saved parents, but then they're also living righteously. They're saved and they're living for the Lord. They're both walking in sweet fellowship with God. You know, like Zacharias and Elizabeth, we're living in a sinful, wicked age, aren't we? And things seem to be constantly getting worse rather than better. And indeed, God's word tells us they will get worse until Christ comes again. They're not going to get better. They're going to keep getting worse. Men are going to wax worse and worse. So we shouldn't be surprised by that. But in the midst of these dark times, we need to, like Zacharias and Elizabeth, let our light shine before men. We must live our faith before others. Be blameless the eyes of men, Philippians 2 tells us that. Let's just turn over there, Philippians 2. Philippians 2 and verse 15. It says that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding forth, The word of life. You know, Paul tells the Philippians here and he tells us that we are to be blameless and harmless as sons of God without rebuke in a wicked and perverse world. That's where we're living, in a crooked, perverse nation. And we ought to let our light shine brightly before men. And you know, that's especially true as parents, isn't it? Especially true as parents in our homes. We are to live our faith before our kids. If we're going to raise godly children, then our children need to not only hear us speak and teach about the Lord, but they need to see the Lord in us. They need to see that we live our faith, that we are walking according to the commandments and ordinances of the Lord. They need to see that our faith is a real thing, that it's, it's living, it's a living faith. If we want to bring our children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, then that is a our vital foundation for the home. That we're saved and we're on fire for the Lord, living our faith. And that's exactly what we see here with Zacharias and Elizabeth. We see secondly now, we've seen their righteousness. We see secondly now their reproach. Their reproach. Look in verse 7 with me. It says, And they had no child because that Elizabeth was barren and they were both well now Uh, Sorry, and they both were now well stricken in years. In verse 7, immediately after we're introduced to this godly couple who are living righteously before men and are righteous before God, immediately after we're introduced to them, we're then told about this heavy burden of reproach that they've had to bear their whole married life. And this reproach was caused by the fact that they had no children. You know, this was something that they both dearly desired. We know that because they've been praying about this. They both dearly desired to have children. They longed for God to to answer their prayer. But God had not seen fit to answer that prayer. And instead, they'd gone through their whole married life without God blessing them with a child. And now it's getting to the point where it seems like hope is fading, that they'll ever be parents. Verse 7 ends, it says, and they were both now well stricken in years. They're getting beyond the age of having children. They're getting too old. And so hope is, is fading that they'll ever be able to have children of their own, that this will ever be a reality for them. You know, for a married couple today to not have children is still a source of great, great sorrow." But in Bible times, there was also a stigma attached to it. For a Jewish woman not to be able to have ch- children, to be barren, it was considered to be a terrible thing because it meant that there was no hope that she would be the mother of the promised Messiah. And it was also looked upon as being a mark of divine displeasure and even uh, punishment from God. You know, God had promised to the people of Israel, that fertility would be one of the blessings from, from obeying Him, from obedience. Just turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 7 with me. Deuteronomy 7. Deuteronomy 7 and verse 12. Says, Wherefore it shall come to pass, if ye hearken to these judgments, and keep them, and do them, that the Lord thy God shall keep unto thee the covenant, and the mercy which he sware unto thy fathers. And he will love thee, and bless thee, and multiply thee. He will also bless the fruit of thy womb, and the fruit of thy land, thy corn, and thy wine, and thine oil, the increase of thy kind, and the flocks of thy sheep, in the land which he sware unto thy fathers to give thee. Thou shalt be blessed above all people there shall not be male or female barren among you or among your cattle. And so one of the blessings that God had promised if they would obey him was fertility, that they wouldn't be barren. Now people had mistakenly taken this to mean that if you were barren, that you were cursed by God. That you displeased God in some way, that this was now the, the hand of God upon you, it was your punishment. And so they're looking at Zacharias and Elizabeth and saying there's some hidden sin. That's why God's judging them. One commentator writes this, he says, the trouble was that many people drew the wrong deduction from this promise. As if in any individual case, barrenness was an infallible sign of God's disfavor. Unjustly, but all too often, the barren woman would be shunned, looked down upon, and despised. And that's what, the situation was for Elizabeth and Zacharias. They were looked down upon, despised by man. You know, you can imagine that when they first got married, there was great expectation of when they would first uh, have their, their first child, they welcomed welcome their first child into the home. But as time went by, their hopes diminished, the trial got harder, it got heavier, and the reproach among men increased. Verse 25 in Luke chapter 1 makes it clear that they felt this reproach. It was, it was very real. In verse uh, twenty-four, Luke chapter 1 verse 24, it says, Now after those days his wife Elizabeth conceived and hid herself five months, saying, Thus hath the Lord dealt with me in the days wherein he looked on me to take away my reproach among men. The very first thing that Elizabeth does when she conceives is she rejoices and gives thanks to God. Why? That he has taken away her reproach. And so it was a very real thing that she felt. She felt the reproach of not being able to have children. It was a heavy burden, a heavy trial that the Lord had allowed to come into their lives. And God had allowed it to come even though, as verse 6 says, they were both Righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. Even though they were living for God, even though they were both saved and they're both walking in obedience to the Lord, God allowed this trial to continue. God allowed this bitter, burdensome trial to afflict them. God allowed this trial which caused others to look down upon them. You know, and God didn't just allow it for a short period of time. God allowed this to continue right throughout their married life. To the point where they're now getting too old to have children. It's a, it's a burden, isn't it? It's a hard trial that God allowed them to go through. But you know, what this teaches us here, what this reminds us of, is that being righteous does not exempt us from going through hard trials. Trials... Do not just come upon the unrighteous. There are trials that are chastisement for sin, yes. There are times when we've walked away from the Lord and the Lord allows something to come into our life to chastise us, to bring us back to Him. But there are plenty of other trials where we are walking in a right relationship with God, but He still allows that trial to come, that hardship to come, and they may be some of the most difficult trials we've ever been through. That may last for the longest period of time in our lives as well. But you know, as believers, while those trials may be hard, while those trials may seem to drag on, there is one thing that we can be sure of, and that is that God has a purpose. You know, we all know Romans chapter eight, where it talks about the fact that if we're living with the Lord, then those things work out for His good. Romans eight verse twenty-eight. The verses just escaped me. Let's just turn there. Romans eight. I don't want to quote it and make a mess of it. Romans 8, verse 28, we know it well. It says, And we know that all things work together for good. To them that love God, to them while the are called according to His purpose. If we're living for the Lord in His will and there's a burden upon us, we know it's for our good. There's a purpose to it. There's a reason God's allowing us to go through that trial. You know, James chapter 1, are wonderful verses concerning this whole idea of a trial. Let's just turn there. James chapter 1. Again, familiar verses, but... Verses which add so much to what we're talking about here this morning. James chapter 1. <clears throat> in verse 2. It says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. James tells us, he says those trials, when they come, we are to join them. Why? Because they work patience. They're for our good. In other words, God uses these trials to build godly character in us. You know, Job, he said of his trials in Job chapter 23 and verse 10, he said, But he knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Job, we all know the the trials, the afflictions he went through, and they lasted for a long time. And they were a heavy burden. But Job, he said, When God's tried me, I'll come forth as gold. Job understood that God was allowing those things into his life to refine him. To help him to grow spiritually. You see, trials are God's refining fire. To get rid of the impurities so that we might shine even brighter for him. And that's certainly the case here for Zacharias and Elizabeth. They're living for the Lord. They're righteous before God. They're walking in obedience to Him. And God allows them to go through this trial so that at the end, they shine brighter, don't they, for His glory. This trial was for God's purposes, for God's glory. And so God allowed them to go through this reproach. And that's where we come now this morning to our third point. We see now their response, we've seen their righteousness. Their reproach, and now we see their response. Look at me in verse 8. It says, And it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense. And there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. When Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard. And the wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. In these verses now, we're told of their response. Their response to this great trial, this great affliction upon them. Even though it seemed like time was running out, For them to ever have children of their own. Even though it seemed like their prayers were falling on deaf ears. It seemed as if God wasn't answering. The response from Zacharias and Elizabeth here is exemplary. Because many in similar situation would have become discouraged. Many of us in a similar situation may have become even bitter towards God. Began to question God. But instead, what we read here is that they continued to faithfully serve God. That's what we read. We read of their continued faithfulness to Almighty God. Now, here we have Zacharias in the temple, and he's performing his duty to the Lord. He's faithfully serving God. And he's not just there going through the motions. And we know that because the angel meets with him and says, your prayers have been answered. He's there with the right attitude, isn't he? He's there with his heart right before God. He's not just going through the motions. He's there with the right attitude before God. He's there to serve and to worship his God. He's faithful God. He hasn't given up on God. He hasn't turned his back on God. He hasn't stopped serving God. Here we have Zacharias performing his duty as a priest of the law. Let's just read again from verse 8. It says... And it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God, in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people were praying without, at the time, of incense. And so on this this particular occasion, he has the privilege here of burning incense before the veil. this is something that was chosen by lot, as it says there in verse 9 was chosen by Lot, and so the Lot has fallen upon him, and he has this privilege of being the one to burn incense before the veil, while the people are outside in prayer. And this was something that each priest would probably only get to do once in their life, because there's multiple priests, and they would rotate around who got to do this. And so it's his turn, and it's a great privilege, a great honor. And he's there, and he's faithfully serving God. And that's the wonderful truth that comes out here. Their service for God didn't decline. We don't read in verse 6 of their righteousness and of them walking godly. And then verse 7 of the trial and then how they turned away from God. How they stopped serving God. Their service for God didn't decline because of the heavy burden. They remained faithful to God throughout it all. They didn't become bitter. They didn't stop serving. Throughout it all, they continued to serve and continued to pray. They continued to pray in faith, believing that God was in control, that God was in control of their situation. God had a plan. And if God never answered their prayer, never gave them children, they were content to realize God was in control of that too. That's the heart attitude we see here. It was completely surrendered to God, this burden. And they continued in prayer. And now one of the angels meets him and says, Your prayer has been heard. Verse 13. It says, But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard. And the wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. After all these years of praying and faithfully serving God and bearing this burden, God now answers their prayer. He sends an angel to tell him, Your prayer has been answered. And they're going to have a son. Of course, that son would grow up to be the forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist. You know, John was born in God's perfect timing. God was in control. God knew exactly what he was doing when he let Zacharias and Elizabeth go through this trial for all these years. God knew when it was going to come to an end. God knew what he was going to do when he brought it to an end. He was going to give them a son who would be the forerunner of none other than the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God knew best. God's timing was best. God's answer to prayer was right. And it always is. And indeed, their faithful response to this trial is an example to all of us. The commentator McLaren, he said this, Let us learn that unfulfilled wishes are not to clog our devotion, nor silence our prayers, nor slacken our running the race set before us. I thought that summed it up well. Unfilled wishes are not to clog our devotion. They're not to silence our prayers. They're not to slacken our running in this race. God knows what He's doing. There's a reason to it all. You see, beloved, trials will come, but we must face them by turning to the Lord in faith and then continuing to faithfully serve Him. We join our hearts. First you know, Peter 5 verse 7. says, Casting all your care upon him. Why? For he careth for you. You see, we need to take that burden, that trial, and lay it at his feet. And let him deal with it. In his time, in his way, according to his purpose. You know, when we look at Zacharias and Elizabeth, that's what we see here. We see a godly married couple who lived a life that reflected their faith, and in the midst of a bitter, hard trial, they responded in faith. And God blessed them for that faithfulness. You know, what an example we have here this morning for all of us as believers. But what an example we have for us as parents. You know, may we, as parents, walk and live by faith in this present wicked world. So that we might leave a godly example for our children. May they see our faith. And you know when they'll see our faith most is when those trials come. When those hard times, those afflictions come. And so may we respond in faith during those times, casting all our cares upon him. And with joy in our hearts, continue to faithfully serve him. Because that's what God expects us to do. And when we do that, we're setting the perfect example for our children. Perfect testimony for the unsaved around us as well. And so may we learn from the example this morning of Zacharias and Elizabeth. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord, and we Father. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you record uh, wonderful truths like this about, uh, Lord, men and women in the Bible. Lord, examples for us to follow. And here we have this godly couple, these uh, two parents, Lord. Lord, who lived their faith. Lord, even in the midst of hard trials, Lord, they continue to serve you. Lord, may we learn from this. Lord, may you help us. Uh, Lord, all of us, whether we're parents or not, to daily live our faith before men, even in the midst of those trials, Lord, we pray. Bless now as we close. Bless the rest of our day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.